to loot and to, and to make things violent, to distract so they can run into these stores and clean them out. And there are people who do this professionally, mm-hmm. and there are people that just kind of fall in line. Because at a protest, no matter how peaceful your intentions are, and again, as I said, I believe they are, there's high emotion. Someone's been killed at the hands of the police. That's pretty high emotion. And yeah. it doesn't take much, just a little spark, to turn that into a raging fire. So a professional, someone who knows how to agitate the crowd, does that. It turns violent. They start looting. And then someone who was there maybe for the purpose to be peaceful but still high emotions sees this opportunity. Says, hey, everyone's doing it. I'm going to get my share, and I'm just going to run that store and grab what I can. Why should I be left out? And that's what happened. And the entire message then is away from what the initial peaceful protesters wanted to say. It's it's scary, and besides the fact that they have it on on video, and nobody cares that they that they're going to get caught. They're not going to catch all of them. But what bothers me too is this situation: a cop killed a man. What happened was was should not have happened, and legal action was taken against the four. And I'm trying to figure out because I just read it as to why they let him out on bail when they should be quarantined because George Floyd had COVID-19. There's something wrong with this picture. And it's also said that, and then what about his family? All these people, and people that came to these protests, not, not always from Minneapolis or whatever state. Do people fly in or drive in just to, just to be agitated, just to be part of it? And don't they see themselves on film and how they look? They don't care? Well, so let's unravel several things. Here. So, yes, these agitators are these professionals come in from out of town for the yeah. purpose of creating the opportunity to ignite the fire, start the looting, start the breaking down of you know, store windows and doors, and that gives them the opportunity to do what they want. This is what they do. As I said, sometimes they've been known to do this in areas that are going to have a natural disaster. People evacuate. There's no one at home. The police presence, uh, excuse me, the police presence is minimal, if at all. And there's a golden opportunity for them. So there's a lot of bad people out there, Brandon. And you and I have talked mm-hmm. about yeah, that many know. times. Now, as far as the officer being out on, on bail, uh, the COVID-19 is almost a, it is a separate issue from the bail. And we have, uh, no matter what we saw on television, no matter what our personal beliefs are, we have to remember that the criminal justice system operates on the concept of innocent till proven guilty, a presumption of innocence, no matter what the evidence is up front, no matter how damning mm. it may be, that is a presumption. And bail is set not as a, really a punishment. It's set to ensure that the person shows up for trial. And in the case of this rookie police officer, and I don't disagree, uh, we look and we say, okay, what are the odds of this person being a danger to the community? I say they're very low. What are the odds that this person is going to flee the jurisdiction or the country, for this matter, to avoid prosecution? I say very low. Uh, again, someone may disagree. I'm just giving my opinion. Uh, I say it's low, and therefore bail has to be set. Again, it's not meant to say we saw, we saw evidence. We don't like it. Uh, we're going to punish you by not allowing you bail. Bail is, has to be set fairly, just like we're claiming we want you know, fair due process for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way to achieve that is not to take due process away from someone else, no matter what. It's it's, it's scary. I mean, they set it set the the three to seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. I think the other one was was a little bit more. I'm not sure, but so he's charged with with murder uh, murder in a third, and then all of a sudden uh, they pumped it up to murder uh, two. 
Is there a way that a good prosecutor could pump up the first Carvin's um, to to murder one? Because he would put his knee on his thing, and when the guy said, um, I, ca- I can't breathe, or I can't, however he said it, Derek Chauvin didn't do anything. He didn't get his leg off. Could he have said to himself, well, let's just get rid of this guy. It doesn't really matter. This way he can't prove it. And isn't it true that George Floyd was trying to pass off counterfeit bills or something? So instead of trying to kill him, why didn't they figure out where those came from? Okay, so let's, again, let's interrupt. So we're talking about um, the murder charge. And at first, mm-hmm. we, we had a third-degree murder charge, and now we have a second-degree murder charge. Yeah. The question is the... A good prosecutor has to, one, look at what charges are applicable. Uh, you know, did this officer, Officer Chauvin, go out with premeditation to mm-hmm. uh, kill George Floyd? And as we know, premeditation, as you know, planning in advance, but it doesn't require a long-term planning. So, for example, um, one of my private investigations I'm working here, I've worked for guys when they uh, – feel they've been wrongfully convicted. You know, I've been doing several of those. And this one was a triple homicide. Mm. And in this case, you know, the individual was saying, well, yeah, I did do it. He's not, he's not he's saying I did do it, but I didn't, it wasn't premeditated. Well, what the evidence suggests, and this is quite, was happened quite a long time ago, uh, based on witnesses, is that he shot somebody, hesitated for a moment to turn away, came back and said, this is for you, with a curse word, and shot him again. Ooh, Just within, within that moment... Of stopping and coming back, he was found guilty of premeditated murder because of that moment in which he thought about it. So, had he not done that, he may have may have made the defense, you know, is the the moment, which wouldn't mean he's not getting uh, convicted of something, but it would have taken away from the premeditated, perhaps. So here, one has to ask: when Officer Chauvin took custody of him, did he say, "I'm going to kill this guy"? I, I think the odds mm-hmm. of proving that are low. Then the question is, yeah. during that time on his neck, was he thinking, yeah, if I keep this up, I'm going to kill him. Good. Um, so I'm going to keep doing it. Or was he just more uh, sort of what we call you know, that reckless disregard for human life? Not thinking, mm-hmm. hey, will this, you know, might result, just doing it. I, I think to show a premeditation would be difficult. Uh, I know people might say, no, it's obvious in that. But the, the prosecutor has to, you know, again, prosecute for what he believes. He can uh, win. But also, you know, ethically, ethically, he's not supposed to, he or she is not supposed to prosecute on a case for which he does not believe there is reason, uh, there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, resulting in conviction. So mm-hmm. emotions tell us, oh, go for the hardest, do everything. But unfortunately, or fortunately, we we are uh, the rule of law, and we want our prosecutors to always, always act ethically in this situation, just as we want to do with every other. Uh, Defendant that comes in front of them, irrespective of their race, creed, or color. Uh, so he has to do, he being the, the prosecutor, do what he thinks makes sense under the law, uh, devoid of emotion. Now, I can't imagine, I'm writing as you're speaking, he's charged with, with murder, and they have to arrest for proceed, and they're pretty much supposed to stay, stand by the book. Would a good defense attorney actually get this guy off, and would a jury actually acquit them? I mean, maybe the well, other two, but well, well, him, I mean, that's scary to think that he can go to, and he wanted to make a deal, and they said no. I read that, too, this morning. He wanted to make a deal with them, and they said no, which I said, that's good. He should go to trial. Or would they try to make a deal yeah, well, for 25 to life? Right. Well, the reason we have deals is not just to give people a break. 
Uh, The reason we have deals is because we know that the trial system is unpredictable. And we've seen that. Uh, Rodney King, uh, South Carolina, Uh um, I think um, Mr. Scott, I think his name was, excuse me if I I got that wrong, Um, you know, gunned down while he's running away from a cop over nothing. I I remember that just like thinking to myself, this cop must have had just some sort of breakdown. It was crazy. But um, so, but no matter what, one of the first things you learn in law enforcement is that no case is a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. And if you go in there with that attitude, oh, it's self-evident, you know, it speaks for itself, and you don't really prepare and, you know, uh, get all the evidence you can, and, you know, cross the T's, dot the I's, there's a good chance you lose. There's always a defense. We don't always see it because we're looking through the frame of a police officer or prosecutor. But can he, he get... Uh, Chauvin off, it's certainly conceivable. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. likely, but it is certainly is conceivable. Or he could have the charge reduced even further. And, and also, in, in states, and I don't know the law in Minneapolis, uh, per se, the rules, when people are charged with, with murder and the different degrees, the jury usually has the option of finding them guilty on a lesser degree, even though it was not specifically charged. So that could happen That's often. That's scary. Also. Uh, That's scary. So they have to get they can make the, you know, a defense attorney's going to go in there and say, uh, look, the officer is right there. He's in plain view of everybody. He, he, he felt he was doing the right thing. Uh, maybe it was abusive, but he certainly didn't see this leading to death. Uh, you know, that, that's a, an argument you can make, and, and a, a jury may buy it. You know, they, say, you know, they could argue, do you think he committed murder, right? Being the, being the film, and try to make that argument. And remember also, this is going to happen several months from now. Uh, and the emotions do change. Emotions do uh, die a bit. And you get a jury, a jury there that now is maybe some of the emotions have gone. Maybe there's, they're inflamed by something else. And then I look mm-hmm. at this and say, well, I don't know if this was a second-degree murder. Maybe it was third-degree. Maybe that original uh, charge should stand. Mm. So, again, we can't, go with comp- we, we can't go with our emotions. Because we all saw what we saw. We know what we believe we know. We feel the way we feel. Uh, and no matter what we feel is going to happen, you don't know what evidence is going to come out, how a smart defense attorney, uh, you know, might sort of impugn the evidence and, you know, questions in the mind of the jurors. And we may not get the result we want, even though, as of right now, it seems like a very strong case. They can't actually prove. I'm just thinking this out loud, my brilliance here. I don't know. Um I mean, you know, I know I saw the tape, and I know he had his knee on the back of his neck, blah, blah, blah. Could they say that it really wasn't as, as strong that he just said that to get, to get his knee off? I mean, the man shouldn't have died, no doubt about it. What, what happened was, was, was wrong. But could, he, could this Chauvin say or the other guy say, well, you know, I thought that he was going to get violent or I thought whatever, and, he, and I really didn't press that hard? Can they prove it, even though he said uh, well, that? That he said, what, he couldn't breathe? Yeah, when he said, I can't breathe, could they, could they prove? Right. I, I'm sure he couldn't. Well, I mean, he had to be breathing something to be able to speak. It doesn't mean he didn't feel That's the what I'm saying, yeah. Close, That's right, what I'm closing saying. in on him. You know, he might have felt that. You know, you could breathe but feel that your breath is being taken away from you or you're just not getting enough oxygen that eventually um, it's going to hurt you. But there's a lot of arguments uh, they can make. I mean, if this, mm-hmm. if what he did, the knee to the neck – was not uh, strictly prohibited from Minneapolis law or the police department policy, which I believe is the case. Uh, You know, one could argue, well, I was following what I was trained to do. And 
you know, uh, people, when, when I've arrested people, we've had lots of complaints. You put them in the back of the car, and they say, I can't breathe in the back of the car. Or you, you're handcuffed, you're breaking my arm. Um, unfortunately, you know, some of those the persons telling the truth, but many times they're not. They're just trying to get you to stop and hesitate so they can break yeah. bad on you. So, so, you know, that gives the officer a moment of hesitation. But you have to look, again, at the totality. I'm on top of this guy. I got my knee on his neck. I've been on his neck for almost nine minutes. You know, we got him proned out. So, so the question is, do I, one, why am I, I don't understand why they were still in that position. I watched that yeah, tape, I and I remember hearing, I heard an exchange, if I remember correctly, where uh, the officer says uh, to Mr. Floyd, you got to get in the car. And she said, okay, I'll get in the car. He says, you got to get in the car. Okay, I'll get in the car. I remember thinking to myself, so why aren't they getting in the car? That's exactly why are they the staying point. in this position? Yeah, I, I didn't understand what, what the officer was doing. And, and if you notice, I haven't seen one law enforcement officer, you know, any of the talking heads, uh, come out in support of Officer Chauvin. So he's got no. massive public opinion against him. He's got professional opinion against him. Uh, he is probably going to plead out because I, I don't see him wanting to go to a jury. Uh, with all that has happened and all that's on tape, and already his reputation about being disciplined, even though we don't know what those disciplines that reaction before, uh, you know, all, right now the odds are really stacked strongly against him. He's got a whole bunch of complaints because I read before, like about 15 or 19 complaints against him. They didn't say what it is, and now all of a sudden they're saying uh, Cuomo is saying that they're going to unblock those complaints so that people can actually see them. And I don't know if that's going to make it worse or better if people know what happens. Well, I'm not sure why Governor Governor Cuomo said that. Yeah, he said that yesterday, that they're going to unseal uh, um, things about police officers, yeah. It was on his news. In New York. In New York. York. Yeah, I try not to listen to too much because I get aggravated so easily. It's, like, ridiculous. Um, Sometimes I just think they're overreacting. So when this happens, how should the police departments in every state – deal with this, and what help should the governor get them, and how are these communities, because I, I can't imagine, even over here, I mean, I saw what happened last night in New York, there are too many people there, this virus is going to, the only thing that's going to win is the virus, the coroners, and the, and the funeral directors, because if they're going to have all these people together that are not social distancing, even if they're wearing masks, hugging and walking together, people are going to get sick, so how could the police department and the community handle this without people trying to pick on the police department, because not every police officer is bad. I don't care what they say. No, not every police officer is bad. Fran, you know that uh, before I joined the FBI, I was a police officer for three years. Yeah. During my 24-year career in the FBI on the street, I worked on task force most of my time mm-hmm. uh, with New York City cops. Uh, and during my years in management, uh, I, I worked closely with police departments. I was, like 15 years ago, the special agent in charge of the Minneapolis field officer of the FBI. I had oh, wow. Minneapolis. Yeah, I had Minneapolis police officers on my task forces. Uh, the chief of police at the time uh, was a very close working partner of mine, and, and actually, very we became very close friends. Um, actually, I just emailed him recently to see how he's doing uh, he's with his new task. And, and back then, I don't recall any systemic problems being alleged for that police department. There may have been. I just don't recall that happening. But uh, so police work is, is ingrained in me, and then I know that when I'm asked to comment on these police mm-hmm. incidents with the media, I tend to give the police the benefit of the doubt. I do. And I tend to look for you know, reasons why, because that's just my bias. We all have biases. I've worked with them. I think most cops are good, hardworking people. 
And if we look at the incidents that we discussed in recent times, they're all too many. No question about it. Each one is too many. But you'll hear the number 800,000 kicked around a lot about the estimated number of police officers there are out there. And if you think about all the man hours that are being spent by these 800,000 cops, multiply that by you know an eight-hour shift, and the interactions they're having, whether it be community service, you know, just servicing the public, uh, confrontation that could be nonviolent to violent, all those interactions in which nothing wrong is happening. You know, so we have to realize how much good police work is going on, uh, or at least not bad police work going on on a day-to-day basis, you know, day in and day out. So while all these incidents are inexcusable, there's too many, and we have to get to the root of the problem, like you, I still believe most cops are doing their job correctly. Well, I have to say I agree because when my mom was sick for 11 years and I had to deal with NYPD in three precincts and I had to call 911 a lot and I didn't, they, they were amazing. I mean, what they did for me, my car was stolen and the 49th precinct in the Bronx did everything they possibly could to find the car and they did. It wasn't in great shape, but they did find it and they were amazing besides the fact that one of the people that worked there happened to be related to one of the teachers in my school. That didn't hurt either, but they were great. <laughs> so I, I can't complain about, about the precinct. My father was in a very dangerous area in the Bronx on the 47th precinct in Lilconi Avenue, and they made sure that nothing ever happened. So not everybody is bad, but what happens sometimes, you see a police officer, um, and or people see them on the street. Why do they get defensive when they know that they didn't do anything wrong? Or a police officer will say, can I speak to you a minute or something? I mean, I had an incident about three, four years ago. I didn't know it was a laugh or cry. A, a police officer pulled my girlfriend over and us, and he said, I pulled you over because you were my teacher. I go, it's a good thing I don't get aggravated. <laughs> I, I thought that was hilarious. I mean, my yeah, students, I, 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 I get different points of view, but why do people get defenses when they see the police? That doesn't mean you did anything wrong. I mean, when I see them on the street here, I go, good morning, it's nice to have you around. Most people just look at them and just scale. Why? I mean, they're not. what well, happens if you have an accident or you don't feel well or you have 911 or you're not sick? They're not going to come if you're going to do that. Seriously. Well, well, we have to we have to respect the police, and yeah. you know, I do the same as you. And and you know, sometimes I've been like in the coffee shop, and I do something that makes them feel awkward. And uh, you know, I'll just say uh, that's on me. And I'll buy them a cup of coffee. Uh, I picked yeah. a tab for officers. I remember when I was in New York a couple of years ago. After an officer had been killed, I picked up the tab for an officer. I never mentioned that I'm I'm uh, former law enforcement to them. So mm-hmm. I don't want them thinking that's the reason I'm doing it. I'm doing it out of my appreciation now as a private citizen for many, many years now. I've been retired for a long time, 13 mm-hmm. years. Um, uh, as a private citizen, I appreciate what most of them do. And, and you know, recently on, uh, with these videotapes coming out, one of them on uh, alleged abuse, physical abuse, excessive force, was a, of a Fairfax County, Virginia police officer. Uh, that's where I became a cop. And I knew after I left the department what a great reputation that department had for professionalism. We were pretty well known for that. And when I saw this, even though I was a cop 40 years ago, Fran, it still broke my heart to see that from a, a department that I left with very, very mm-hmm. strong feelings for. So to get to your question, though, but we are afraid of cops. I, look, I raised my kids, and, and just, you know, case I, you know, I'm white, middle class. I don't have those concerns that lower income or people of color have mm-hmm. legitimately. But I still raise my kids to, 
you know, keep your hands where you can see them. Maybe because I, you know, again, was my law enforcement yeah, I know. background. I said, you pulled over, just pull over. Keep your hands on the wheel. Don't make any sudden moves. Don't give them any reason to be nervous. They don't know who you are. And your, your, your answers are yes, sir, and no, sir. Here's, and may I reach for my license or my license in here, sir? Is it okay if I reach? That's all. And just be polite. And, and, and if you get a ticket, just take the ticket. There's another time you can fight it in court. And I say the same thing. Uh, I, have I, I agree with you. You have to be yeah, careful. Yeah, we have to respect I mean, their authority. I mean, we, we went to, my, to take my nephew. It was about two, three years ago. He wanted a brand-new uh, basketball or something and a bat, which I was stuck buying. And my husband didn't realize that he made a U-turn in a legal spot. He didn't realize it. And the cop pulled him over, and he said, basically, I wouldn't give you a ticket, but my partner saw you. So my husband said, you know, you're right. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It was expensive, too. But I felt good because the guy looked at me. I said, I'm just trying to buy my nephew a baseball bat. And I didn't realize it because I don't live out here. And he apologized for giving us a ticket, literally. Yeah, and you I know, just it, said, look, I, I'm sorry. It happens. What can you do? And, and, and cops are different. Look, I was considered probably, you know, when you got to court, my docket was probably a little longer than other people's. <laughs> I was kind of oh. aggressive. But I was never, you know, accused of, you know, being abusive to people. I, I just, I, I stopped a lot of cars. And I remember I had a ride-along one time coming to me, and I put this in my first book. And she noticed me at the end of the shift. She goes, wow, you must have stopped, you know, 10 to 20 cars tonight. But you only wrote three tickets out of that. So often, whether or not the cop writes the ticket depends on how you react to the cop. Yeah. Well, he felt that. I'd love to go on a ride along. That would be fun. That would be fun. Uh, I think every, you know everyone should do it, 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 it especially if you get a night where something happens. It'll give you a new appreciation for what they do. Uh, they're up against some tough is, things, uh, and tough decisions. I, I had a date a long time ago before I got married. Thank God I was smart. And the guy that went out with had a flat tire or something, and he pulled over. So the state trooper came, and there was just something about this person that got me nervous. So I said to the state trooper, can you put me in the back of the police car? I really did. And he looked at me and go, because there's something about this person that I just met that my friend introduced me to that I didn't like. And they did. They put me in the back of the police car. I couldn't get out. And they ran my name, and they said, you're an educator, blah, blah, blah. You should know. But I said, tell to the person that introduced me to him. And they drove me to a restaurant down the block so I could call my brother who yelled at me for even going out at all. And what they found out about this guy, that he had contraband in the back of his car. And I don't know what they did with it, and I didn't really care. I, I don't want to laugh or cry because I, I did crazy things. But it was just a blind date, and I said there was just something, you know, it was a good thing I did. So how can we convince people that there's another world that's possible? Visionary ideas that the world and people who put them forward set they instead of the defensive. How can we have positive change? I mean, these people, they don't even see themselves on television and how they look. How can we get everybody to understand that this is a world and we're all in it together and we've got to get along? How do you do that? Wow. Fran, if I had the answer to that, I'd run for president. All right. Um, <laughs> well, we've you know, we, we replaced the one that we have that doesn't know what he's doing. Um, you know, in, in terms of police work, uh, I did a radio show a couple of days ago up in Chicago uh, regarding this, you know, the funding of the police. You know, basically, I said, let's just not call it that. That's a ridiculous concept. Let's just call it reform. Because do we need reform in police yeah. work? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, we, need, we need to, you know, when I say that most cops are good, most cops don't do this, that's great for me to say, but the reality is the public doesn't feel that way. Because they see this tape, 
after tape, no video, video after video, uh, you know, police being abusive or at least appearing to be abusive. Again, there might be another side to the story. And it just, it just gets people feeling, wow, I can't trust the cops. So we have to get more aggressive in stopping, um, you know, this uh, excessive use of force. Again, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. something maybe we need to look at more. Uh, we have to recognize that uh, the administration of justice uh, has not been fair for the minority community. We know that. We have to change that, which is just reflective of society. We know that it's not fair to minority commu- community in housing and in, and in education mm-hmm. and, and, and other things. We, we know that. So it's systemic in, in our system, not just police work, in just who we are, and we need to uh, address that. Now, on the other side, and you know, some of your listeners may not like when I say this because uh, I get kind of a raised eyebrow. Uh, when I bring this up, but we have to understand our responsibility. And this is our collective and individual mm-hmm. responsibility to police. So when I was in the police academy, one of the first things I learned, or at least that stuck out in my head, was being told, you may make a traffic stop on a very minor incident, and it may escalate to you shooting the individual, and that doesn't mean you are wrong. Mm-hmm. So Here's what I want people to recognize, especially when they see cops arresting people. And they say, oh, but it's such a minor offense. When a police officer tells you you are under arrest, it's not a request. It's not a negotiation. You are under arrest. And in every, in almost every state or every state, I'm sure, if you resist arrest, you have now just committed a more serious crime. Mm-hmm. You know, possibly and likely more serious than the crime which they stopped you for. So it doesn't matter if they stop you for some traffic thing or, or something that you don't think is legitimate. The police officer made a decision to put you under arrest. He or she has to get you under arrest. And you hear all people say, oh, but it was just for this minor thing. We'll have to get in a fight for Well, yeah, I agree. I, I'd rather they not. Uh, but think if every time someone didn't want to be arrested, they put up some resistance. You know, even for mm-hmm. a minor offense. And the police said, oh, that's it, you're right. I'll, you know, I'll walk away. The system, the system would fall apart, and we know that. And, and if you're that storekeeper who's tired of, you know, someone just stealing small amounts of inventory from you, and, and you want them prosecuted, you're not going to want to see that. They'll, they'll become Keystone cops. So, so, understand that police have to sort of win this confrontation. They have to. That's the system. That's why we train them physically. We train them in defensive tactics because we know this is part of the job. And when we talk about police use of force, yes, it always has to be reasonable, reasonable, and, and commensurate with what's going on, the use of force they're, they're up against and, and the nature of the crime. Okay? So that's why in almost every case you'll hear almost that when someone's fleeing, you can't shoot someone just for fleeing. And in some states it depends on the other aspects. So an officer takes you under arrest. He, has, he or she has to use the reasonable force necessary, not to meet the amount of force you're using, but to overcome the amount of force of your resistance. Because they have to win. They have to overcome that. It has to be reasonable. So if you keep fighting, the officer's using minimal force, trying to, you're not taking verbal commands, you're not putting your hand behind your back, he's trying to get your hand behind your back, you're fighting. If that's not working, then they have to use more force incrementally. Again, they just can't go right to shooting you or, or you know, disabling you. But they have to bring you under cause. And so if you're going to resist, you are creating a situation where you may get hurt. And if you have a medical condition, 
in which, you know, fighting somebody or having someone you know, pound on you in a sense, uh, you know, maybe two people tackle you is going to be exacerbated, that you have a responsibility not to create that situation. Again, I'm not excusing excessive use of force by cops. I'm not excusing the chokehold uh, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, someone who's clearly in distress and you keep applying pressure to a neck. But I am saying is that uh, if you create an environment in which the officers have to arrest you and you're not complying and they have to use more force, and then that more force uh, results in something because of the medical condition that you know you have, just don't put yourself in that situation. Okay, so I think we have to take some personal responsibility as well. And when you run from the police and you create an environment in which the police are not afraid, have a reason to fear you, you're going to be met with, you know, sort of some escalated force because now they have, they have to fear for their own safety. So police officers must be reasonable. They must be held to a high standard. They must be accountable for their actions, all of that. Mm-hmm. But as a society, as an individual, we have to take some responsibility in, in the environment that we may create if we don't cooperate. No, I agree. Now, George Floyd, my question is, they arrested him because they thought he was passing counterfeit bills. And yet the store owner and the, and the person that called the police um, didn't do anything about that. Could it be possibly that they ask him, do you know you have that? Did he say, I don't know what that is? And then the, the police got a little overzealous, whatever. Um, that, that's what I'm wondering. They arrested him, and then people you know, automatically assume that the police were bad. As, I don't know, was he violent? I know he was on fentanyl and other drugs. I know he took drugs. So I'm right. just wondering if, any, if he was high when he took it. They said he wasn't violent at all. So well, they and, you know, him. even if he was violent, That's scary. even if he yeah, was violent before the arrest, even if he was violent, uh, once you have your knockdown, drag out fight, and you have the handcuffs yeah. on, the fight is over. It is over. That's right. And, period. And um, you know, and we learned that you don't get to throw in one more punch. You don't get to decide what the uh, punishment should be. It is over. And I always turn right. to my defensive tactics, FBI and police. There's a certain way to arrest people who are, who are trying to resist. Well, we get them down on the ground, face down, face down, uh, because it's just easier for us to control them. We have them spread their arms. Mm-hmm. We have them turn their head, you know, away from us. They know what we're doing. And then we sort of get on top of them, not compression to the neck, but we're almost kind of sitting on the shoulder and their head. We're hovering over that because if the person can't get momentum with the upper body, uh, they're not going to be able to uh, get up, which is what you want. So you do that, you get one hand under control, then you bring the other hand, you handcuff them. At that moment, you get off of the individual. Of course, we're not smothering them. We're not cutting off the circulation. They can breathe. You get off of them, and you help them up. The fight is over, and you get them in the car, and you do your business. And that's what police have to remember also. They don't get to decide to go that extra step. I don't care what the individual did. If he was violent beforehand, once he's under control, it is over. I agree. So, I I watched and I cried. I grew up in the South Bronx, and I watched what they did to my neighborhood, where I shopped. The looting and destruction, and they criticized, and the police were trying to protect them and the innocent people. I mean, how do you stop this, or can you stop it? Do these these people have spokespeople that are dynamic and cause? And you know, insight to incite people, but when they have this protest, do they need permission to have them, or can they just have them? And is there a spokesperson that would 
One piece, I got the impression that Joyce Fledge family wasn't happy with all this protesting. I mean, speaking out is one thing, but I don't think they were happy with all the violence. No, I got that, I, I, I got that I'm impression. sure they were not. Again, I don't well, think why, they were why at would all. they want that? No, they're grieving. I don't think they're so grieving at all. the loss of the hand. Yeah, they grieve the loss yeah. of a family member you know, from violence. Why would they want to create violence, and why would they want to, one, because they're good people, why would they want to create it, but why would yeah. they want that uh, after they just suffered from that? And then, and then people are doing this in his name, and that sort of, like, embarrasses and takes down the importance of the fact that he died and the sadness in it. I mean, I see all it the shirts and everybody, and everybody's yelling, Black Lives Matter, and that's very true. But you know what? They're not going to like what I'm going to say. Everybody matters. And I don't care what anybody says. Well, that I, I don't me. think. Yeah, well, I don't think Black Lives Matter, and, and I don't. I'm not part of the movement. I wasn't there, so I, I don't speak in their behalf. But just my personal opinion from the outside yeah. looking in is it was a response to situations. I'm not saying Black yeah. Lives Matter to the exclusion of everybody else. I think That's they're saying the we, matter too. we matter too. We matter too. That's right. Like, what, what I think the message is, and they're saying, and when our lives are taken at the hands of the police, we're not getting the accountability that other people would get if the. Uh, if the victim was mm-hmm. white. That's how I read it. I don't think it was meant to say that you don't count or we count more. I think it was meant mm-hmm. saying we count, we count too, and you must hear our voice. That's how I take it. I think we need to work together to make everybody understand that because I don't think everybody gets it. Of course it. we do. Right. I, I, I mean, and that's why I think now people are thinking this is a you know, monumental uh, you know, sea change that we see uh, people of all races and ages coming out in support. Of this need for that, That's what makes it even better. I mean, I taught in a tough school in the Bronx, and I'm little. And I taught in an all-black school in the Bronx. And you know what the funny part is? I never had a problem, ever, ever, with that, with any parent or anybody. I mean, it was just how you present no yourself. Reason, no reason you knew. should have, yeah. And the kids knew, don't mess with this little girl. She's going to get you. But I loved them. I mean, I, I, I could walk into a room of 500 kids, and they would look at me, okay, she's got cookies for us. We're going to be quiet <laughs> or something. <laughs> Every everything I did was, you know, I mean, I wasn't perfect, but I must have done something right because my students are on Facebook and they tell me about that every day, and they're not that much younger than me. And they make me feel good, and I, I get reminded. So, how does the media deal with this? Do they hype this up? How does the media often set the stage for what people believe and hear and react to? And do they actually fuel the anger? Because sometimes I, I watch something and I go like, if you would only say it a little bit differently, if you wouldn't get so riled up, if you would let people actually if you hear what you're saying, do the, does the media make it worse? And, of course, we know who else makes it worse. Right. Well, I think the media can make it worse if they're not careful. And yeah. I see things. And I'm look. I, I'm a talking head with the media a lot. I don't have any big issues with the media, uh, mm-hmm. but they have done things I don't like. For example, uh, I've seen cases where you know so much was a video of the cops uh, on a violent confrontation, and they ask the question, "Well, why hasn't the cop been arrested?" And I hate when they do that because maybe the investigation is not complete. Maybe there's no. Yeah. Uh, Thought on the prosecutor right now that I have to arrest him. I'm not sure the police officer did anything wrong. And when they phrase it like that, when they phrase it like that, uh, you know, it, it's prejudice against the police. It's the suggestion that he or she did something wrong without knowing the facts. I, that bothers me. Um, I'll tell you something else that bothers me. Again, yeah. some viewers may uh, not be happy with this when I say it, but it's how I feel. Uh, when they bring up all these instances of police abuse, uh, excessive force, yeah. police racism, they bring in the Ferguson matter and Michael Brown. Now, that case was investigated by the Department of Justice, the FBI, other agencies. And what they found, they being the investigators, that there was prejudice within the administration of justice in Ferguson. 
the minority community was not getting their fair shake. That is true. But, but the shooting of Michael Brown by that officer was not found to be excessive, was not found to be abusive, and was not unjustified. That Michael Brown was not killed because of the acts of a racist or abusive cop. And that was determined. And then hands up, don't shoot, did not happen. And I think it's important to note that because all the things that went wrong in Ferguson, which I you know, believe should not fall at the feet of that officer, who I believe, based on what I've read, and I've read that report several times, uh, based on what I report, it was a justifiable shooting. And the implication being, when they bring up the name, is that officer did something wrong, when there is no evidence that he did that. You may feel that way, and people may have that opinion, but we had, a, I believe, you know, an impartial investigation by the Department of Justice, and that, that was not the finding. Sometimes people just automatically say the police are wrong, even though they don't they don't know because they have a prejudice against the police for no reason. So, what, what changes do we need to make so this doesn't happen and escalate in the future? And people need to listen and hear and understand. And obviously, they don't. That's what scares me: is that this is not over yet, or maybe it is now. No, that they, they had a funeral. I don't think it's over yet. Right. A lot of things we talk about. You know, people said, should we have? Uh, crisis intervention training. Yeah. Should that be brought Well, you know, Fran, when I was a student at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, I was part of a group, I was a member of a group that went around to police departments and trained them in crisis intervention. Uh, that was more than 40 years ago. So that is not a new concept. I learned that in the police academy, de-escalation, um, intervention. We learn all that, but perhaps we need more of it. Uh, in the academy, we need mm-hmm. to stress de-escalation intervention. We need to do it in in-service training throughout the career as well. Uh, we need to change the culture of police work. There's no que- look. When I was a cop, there's no question. You know, uh, you know, being a tough guy was you know, kind of not not respect in the sense that you're abusive, but you know, they want to know that you can go down. You're not going to be afraid to do what you have to do. If you know the other cops in danger, or you're in danger. You're not going to back off. You can't back off. Um, you know, so there is sort of this macho. Uh, you know, type A personality on police work. I don't know that we could change that. But we have to change the culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's what we say and do, what management says and does. And if they, if the manager set the example, no, I'm not looking for you to go out there and beat heads and brag about who you beat up. I'm looking you to come in and brag about what incidents you, you are de-escalated, what trouble you stopped, you know, what arrest mm-hmm. you made without incident, without, you know, creating a problem. Those are the things I'm going to look at. And when you were confronted with violence, I'm going to re- I want you to brag about the fact that you used you know, a reasonable amount of force to overcome it. Uh, that, those are the kinds of things you have to see. So we have to see that. We have to see better interaction with the community. Um, I've talked yeah, about, I think on your show and other shows, uh, many, uh, I know the FBI and many police departments have the Citizens Academy. Uh, mm-hmm. where citizens come for like one night a week for X number of weeks, and they learn about the department, they learn about what they do, they hear from the officers or the FBI agents about what they're up against. It is great. It makes for great relations. But I also think, and I heard recommended to me on another show I was on, this is not my original thought, is that during the police academy, should we have citizens come in and make presentations about uh, what it's like to be confronted by the cops either as a minority or just otherwise, what fear they go through when those lights are turned on, what they're worried about, have community leaders and your regular people come in. And That's a good idea. Going on. So, yeah, I thought it was a great idea. I said, yeah, I'm for that. Let's do it. And, and so these officers come out with an understanding of how they're being perceived and what they're up against and how they need to maybe change what they thought 
uh, you know, would have been good police work, what really works in today's day and age. Well, after teaching for 100 million years in a public school, the last couple of years uh, before this principal came who doesn't really belong there, um, if kids got into trouble, I, I said we shouldn't suspend them. We did. I created with my friend a peer mediation program, which I think that high school should have, and maybe even high school students should go in and to the police department and see what, what it's like and understand it better too. The peer mediation program worked because the kids would talk to each other. I would, you know, tell them write down whatever, and everybody gets to speak, but nobody gets to interrupt. And then we'll decide on, you know, what happens further. And it was very rare that I had to suspend somebody at the dean. Because they were listening to each other, and I said, okay, you did this, you did that, you're both wrong. Now what are we going to do about it to make it right? And I think that that's maybe maybe PM, maybe the cops need peer mediation. Maybe the citizens need to come in, like you said, and, and speak. And maybe high school kids that get into trouble or college kids that drink too much and get into trouble should, need to understand what, it, what the process is instead of just right. saying that the police are wrong. And I also think yeah. that sometimes politicians fuel the fire, too, because they really want oh, people to yeah, side with whoever they want to side with, and that bothers me also. Right, right. Exposure and understanding is critical to us changing things. Uh, I think some of the reforms that are being recommended on the federal level might work. Uh, we have to remember okay. policing is a, is a state function for our Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, most police powers rest with the state, so they are going to decide for themselves, but if you tie federal funding to it, uh, you can get some change. I think a national standard for the use of force is a good idea. Um, and mm-hmm. from that perspective, because it is, the, it is the FBI, the federal government, who will come in under the Civil Rights Code and determine if excessive uh, force was used. It doesn't require a racial animus to prosecute an officer acting under the color of law. So I think a federal standard, uh, mm-hmm. if not a recommend, you know, if not a, a law, at least a strong recommendation as best practices, uh, is a great idea. And uh, let's just, you know, get some more training, more awareness, more uh, public police interaction. Uh, you know, commu- again, community policing, community-oriented policing, not a new concept. I remember again when I was a young cop. You know, they're asked to get out there and, you know, just talk to people, stop into the store owners, you know, walk the streets a little bit, even though where I was, there were no sidewalks. You know, people wondered what I was doing. But that's how you do it. That's how you generate conversation. Drive around the neighborhood, see what's happening, talk to things. Even, again, going mm-hmm. back 40 years, I and my colleagues, we stopped, we shot hoops with the kids, not all day long, for a couple minutes, you know, while you're working. They loved it. Mm-hmm. They absolutely loved it. And if you treat people right, you know, I, again, I, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm not trying to pump my own book here, but in my first book, uh, I talk about an incident where uh, a kid took a swing at me one time. And, um, you know, he was, he, was, he was, I think, ODing, whatever. And, and he didn't even hit me. And, and, you know, people asked if I wanted to charge him with something. And I said, no, let it go. And, and, you know, I went to the hospital to take a statement from him you know, on the incident. And, and I just said to him, look, you know, I could lock you up. I'm not doing that. You got enough problems. A year or so later, that came back to, uh, to my benefit when I went to break up a, a party. Mm-hmm. And I got surrounded by a bunch of guys, and he walked out of the uh, crowd. He said, all right, I went back off. And he said, Officer Tavin, do you remember me? And I said, yes. And he walked with me, and then we took a walk. And he said, look, you know, I was investigating uh, you know, some hit and runs. He said, I owe you one, man. I'm going to confess I'm the one who did it. You know, and, and he stopped the violence, you know, any violent interaction I had. He admitted to crime, all because of that one gesture I did probably a year mm-hmm. or so early. He remembered it. He remembered it. I didn't remember. I wouldn't know him looking at it, but he remembered that. And I think if we take that to heart, 
and, you know, give where we can give. All right, not every confrontation has to result in an arrest. As I said, I used to stop a lot of cars. I didn't always write tickets because I stopped them. Just stop them, see what's going on. If they committed an offense, warn them. You know, do a little looksy around, make sure nothing else is happening, and then you move on to the next thing. So if we tone it down a bit and we don't walk around like, like you know, the sheriff saying, oh, who's going who's gonna to break my law? Just go out there to serve, to serve and protect. We'll be much better. Well, I think some people need anger management. And also, I, I, you know, I don't read a lot on Facebook because I don't like to listen to their complaints. But I think the social media sometimes, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, I think they fuel the fire also. If you look, if you read some of the comments that people make, you know, just general comments, I, I don't answer. And I don't say yes or no to any of this stuff. But it bothers me because I think a lot of it is fueled on, the, on social media also. Of course, and it's all uh, we know that anything could be twisted, facts could be twisted. That's yeah, uh, the that's way, you know, not just what you say, but the way you say it. Like, why was that yeah. officer arrested? You know, that that's pretty accusatory, uh, as opposed to saying, well, what was their finding? Has the officer been arrested? It's how you say it, and what you say. So again, obligations on the side of the police. They have most of the obligation. Of course, uh, they've been rewarded with the public trust. I consider it an honor to be out there. I love being a cop. I love you know, being out there uh, fighting crime. It's just what I enjoy doing. Uh, but it was an honor to be given that kind of authority, that power to fight crime, and they, and they have to live up to it. But the public also has some responsibility. Uh, cops are just humans. They're going to protect themselves. Uh, they, they need to get home at night. And I, you know, I even warn people at protests, you know, and I warn them when I speak, you know, don't get into the face of an officer. Run right up to the face, start yelling and screaming. And then, you know, if, if you evoke some sort of response from them, well, you put them in fear of their safety. And, they, yeah, they're going to respond. How would you like someone getting in your face acting all aggressive? You're going you're to react, too, for your own safety. Mm-hmm. So let, let's stop and think for a second. The cops are people, too. They have, they have fears. We hold them to a high standard. But we cannot hold them to an impossible standard. No, I agree. I mean, as an educator... You have to be careful too. You can't use your hands on kids. And yeah. I learned something, and maybe they can learn. My principal once said to me, because I don't have a temper and I don't get angry that easily, he said to all of us, before you do something stupid, take ten, take a step back and count to ten and think before you say, and don't and be and be careful. And mm-hmm. I, I found that as something that really did help because sometimes you get like I'm going to kill it. You know, this this child is so disrespectful. And then I would turn around and I go, well, you have two choices. You can either listen and we could talk it out, or I'll suspend you from school because I can. And they didn't want to get suspended, or they would apologize. I think the worst student, and I'll never forget it, he was really dangerous. His grandparents locked the door when they heard he was coming home from school. They were afraid of him. The mother said, I I don't even want to be near him, and I had to deal with him in school. And was he dangerous? Oh, yeah, except that he would turn around and say, Mrs. Lewis was the only person I'm not going to kill because she's the only person that understands me. And he would get suspended from class, and then he would walk around, and I would say to him, okay, you know what? You're going to write the rules and tell me what happens if somebody breaks them, and you're going to do the consequences for me and do it now. And he did. He actually knew what he was doing wrong, but he was dangerous. I mean, he beat up a kid over the weekend, and he tried to steal something. He, he knifed somebody, and I'd go like, this is good. And, I, and you know what scared me, Mike, is that my principal said I had to deal with it. I said, but it happened on the weekend. What do I have to deal with it? So I had to deal with the 47th precinct and, and get this mm-hmm. kid out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Sort of get him out of trouble. And yet he walk, used to walk me to my car. My mother said to me, he's such a wonderful child. I go, okay, Ma, whatever you think. You have to be careful. And you have to. And I, I learned something. You can't show them you're afraid. Ever. 
And don't you don't you think that's the same with police officers? Yeah, they have to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. They they can't show that they're afraid, and they and they have to and they do deserve the respect because basically, I would say ninety eight percent of them are not like these officers. I I don't know if this guy just had a bad day. His wife is leaving him. He was having a bad day. Maybe he didn't get his coffee in the morning, or maybe he just overreacted. And you know you know the defense attorney could say he didn't mean to do it. But nowhere does he yeah. show me remorse. This guy, he say he has not said he's sorry. None of the other three did either. Say they're sorry. Well, once you're, you know, once you're arrested, you don't say anything. <laughs> okay, you just keep your mouth shut. Um, right. So just, you know, that's that's probably it. But uh, this afternoon, I'll be interviewing a former chief of police, now a uh, county sheriff. Uh, oh, who's, nice. Who's black, and and we're going to be discussing. Minneapolis. We're going to be discussing um, race relations, you know, in, in, in the police work. Uh, so we're going to have an interesting one. I'll probably air that sometime next week. Uh, Ask him also time. how come if George Floyd has COVID nineteen, why they let those four out? Why they're not quarantined? Because they're going to contaminate yeah. people. I, I, and why I don't is it that really that the family too? And why isn't the family in quarantine? And all those people that were at the at the protest, and all those people well, that were at the Senate that, when he when he spoke. I mean, how do, how do you do that? Somebody's going to yeah. get sick because of that. And not yeah, intentionally and I, either, I, I, but they they made a mistake. That's bad. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's the question for a police chief. You know, um, quarantining is not, you know, on medical issues uh, with the response. I'm not sure he'll have an answer for that. I, I think mm-hmm. more you're... You have an answer to that. Yeah, but the police let him out. state health officials, your state health officials have to... Again, I'm I not even sure so, yeah. that's, a, that's a... I'm not even sure that that's a court decision. The court says bail, you know, in terms of... Uh, any medical, you know, quarantining or whatever they would do, uh, you know, that request would have to come from someone of another thought. The court could enforce it, of course, if they're asked, but I, I, don't I don't know that. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I, would fall on the purview of uh I think that was you know, a mistake. I wonder if I'm surprised the, the prosecuting attorney didn't realize that George, I mean, I read it four times. I looked it up before, and I said, like, this guy had COVID-19. I mean, why would anybody but go near I mean, are, are we quarantining people, or are we just telling them what they should do? I don't, I don't know anyone's been... Involuntarily nobody has. Nobody has been. They, yeah. they didn't even make a record of it. They didn't even say anything. I mean, I happened to read it. I happened to read the coroner's report. I'm going like, why are these people not testing the family? Why is anybody? Why are they outside? If they were near him, then definitely they're they're prone to getting the the, the virus. And I don't want to see anybody else get it. I mean, even here in New York, all those people, any state, any state that where there's these protests, there's too many people. But anyway, when are you writing your next book? You know, um, interesting. I, I, you know, I've been really busy with my businesses, and they've grown. I'm happy to say that. And uh, starting Monday, I'm I'm going to be employing a new employee who is uh, my son, one of my sons. Uh, oh, nice. Going to come work with me full time. So I will enjoy doing that, building business with him. But it'll free me up to do other things. And I think um, I would love to get to a fourth book. I recently had a memory on Facebook about my first book signing. Oh, friend, that was so exciting. I'm sure you you could appreciate that. Uh, I just yep. love doing it. I said, boy, I would love to experience that again. Putting out something, you know, uh, based on your own creativity, imagination, and, and uh, getting some usually good feedback, but sometimes bad feedback. So that's all part of the game. And um, I just love doing it. I love putting my ideas out there. And if anybody, anybody wants to listen and read them, uh, you know, it's just very exciting to be able to share that my books are, my novels are based on my experiences, at least my concepts, my thoughts uh, of police work. And, you know, it's just very rewarding that people want to hear what you have to say. Well, my new book is called What If. What if you experienced what I have 
created with the characters in my book in the world that are kind of like Twilight Zone out there, would you understand that you want? Would you appreciate the world that we're in? We're in and understand we have to get along. And the stories are really like Twilight Zone stories. And I'm very proud of myself. And I'm hoping that 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 everybody reads it and come out. I, I gave it to like ten people to read, but I don't know what they think. And basically, if they don't like well, it, I'm going to be very sad. But I just what see you like that cover. Cover the cover, yeah, you should. The cover yeah. is because the, one of the stories is called Journey to Nowhere, and it's actually it's it's one of my better books, seriously. No. And this, all the stories are it's like Twilight Zone stories, and each of them, the story confinement has nothing to do with the the pandemic, but it has to do with somebody that feels confined. And when she tries to leave, well, you have to see what I do. I'm going to write a sequel, seriously. So no, if anybody wants great. to read it. I have the PDF. Um, I'm hoping that uh, my my editor will figure out, you know, if I have any typos or anything. But Mike, thank you so much. And thank you, friend. I want to. I want. And when you have that other show, send me the link so I can listen. So I'm curious I will do to that. know what they say. Okay. Thank you we'll so do. much. Everybody have thank a great you. day. Thank you. thank you and bye. Bye bye.